Amen. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Pavel. Every uh, once in a while, I, I stand up here to preach on a Sunday morning after you all sing, and I think, oh, we don't need a sermon. Um, it's kind of how I'm feeling right now. Thank you for that song. You can have all this world give me Jesus. Earlier this week, I should say on, on Friday, I had the opportunity to uh, be a dad, to just be a dad here at, at church. I was invited into my daughter's preschool class. Uh, she is in the, the four-year-old class here, the four- and five-year-old class here, to come and be the dad and talk about what I do. And, and I told them, I said, well, they walk by my office daily and wave at me. They know what I do. And so I was talking to my wife. She said, no, tell them what you actually do. And so I brought them to the choir loft. And I had them sit up here. I hope you didn't find too many uh, pieces of trash and whatnot up here. Uh, we sang a song together, and then I sat a, a stool right here. And I, and I, I actually I told them the story of, of, of Jesus saying, "Let the children come to me while they're up here." And, and I said, I, "I talk about Jesus. That's what I do. I talk about Jesus. I tell stories about Jesus. I tell stories that remind people that God loves them." And so I, I put a chair here. I had them come one by one, stand here, and I said, "Imagine the congregation full of people. What would you tell them about Legos? <laughs> My Little Pony, Dodgers." I said, "Really, the Dodgers?" They, they, all, they all called out different, different things, and I said, yeah, and that's what I do. I stand up here and I talk about those kinds of things that, and tell stories to remind people that Jesus loves them, that God loves them. This morning, we are in a, a part of Romans as we've been journeying through this book that's uh, really hard to just tell a story about. We spent the last three three weeks in Romans 8, and I mentioned that the 8th chapter of, of Romans is kind of a, a pivot point in the letter. It's, it's this, this place that, that focuses on life in the Spirit, and, and it's this place where we turn from what the Gospel does for and what the Gospel does in us to, to the way that we respond to the gift that we have been given. Romans 8, it ends with this beautiful word picture. And last week we were left hanging with them, with these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us, us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. This part of Romans kind of ends with God's continual pursuit of us, that God will never stop that pursuit of us, always seeking to draw us into right relationship with God's self. And then we turn to Romans 9 through 11, and it almost feels like uh, maybe you've read one of those books or seen one of those movies, series, where the writers write the beginning of the story and then the end of the story, and then maybe 30 years later they say, hey, I want to fill in the gaps and write the middle. And then you, you read the middle and you're like, that didn't fit at all. And you think of stories like that where they, they write the, the beginning and the end, and then they write the middle, and you're like, what? This doesn't, this doesn't make sense. These three chapters are Paul's defense on God's sovereignty. 
It's as if he's, he's anticipating a, re, a rebuttal to that, that, that message of, you know what? God continually pursues you. God is, is never done searching for you. God is always looking for you. And he's anticipating the question or the response to that with, well, if God is always searching for us, always looking for us, always reaching out to us, then what about Israel? What about what happened with, with the people of Israel? How can we remain faithful to God if, if we know the history? It's a question really about whether or not God rejected Israel. And if God didn't really reject the people of Israel, how do they fit into the big picture? God called them, God promised them that, that God would be their people, but, or that they would be God's people, but, but many of them rejected Christ. So, so does that mean ultimately that God's promise had, had failed? That's the question that Paul is anticipating. In the middle of asking some very important questions, both for first century Jews and Gentiles and for us today, Paul reminds us that God is in control. That God indeed is sovereign, even when... We don't know how it works, even when we are left with all kinds of questions. I think I've shared the story here before uh, about how when I was in seminary, I used to commute with with a a buddy from San Diego to Pasadena. It was a lovely, lovely commute. Um, And and I I carpooled with a a guy named Mike. He's now an Anglican priest uh, just outside of D.C., and we would spend hours in the car together often unpacking something that we read or something that we we heard in in a class. And then after debating or having a conversation with one another, we'd kind of stop and say, well, God's God and I'm not. And I'm grateful for that reality. We got to the place where we we get to the place where we are today in this passage with Romans where we just say, you know what? We don't have all the answers. And yet, even though we don't, especially when we experience weeks like we have these last couple of weeks, we still have a role to play, a role to play in in helping, in in actually I shouldn't say helping, in in helping uh, others to experience God's love. We still have a role to play in giving people, as I talk about those, those glimpses, those small glimpses of God's kingdom in today's world. And as we're honest with our concerns, as we're honest with our, our questions, while we love God and, and love neighbors, we can be honest with our concerns and honest with our questions and love our, our neighbors and God at the same time. We're continually molded into the people that God has called us to be. So at the beginning of Romans 9, Paul describes the pain that he feels for his people. He writes, I wish I myself could be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. He's lamenting the reality that his his closest friends, his family, have rejected Christ. And it's so painful that he would give up his relationship with Christ so that they might experience what he's experienced. It's that painful for him. Then starting at verse 6, we read this. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. 
In other words, it is not the, the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the entirety of, of Romans 9 can be framed by two questions, and, and those two questions are, are really summarized by one word. Why? Why? The, the first from the verses we just read is, if God is just, why does God make the decisions that God does? Why does God choose some people and not others? It's, it's just not fair. Why? And then he tells the story of Isaac and Ishmael, reminding the reader that even though Ishmael's birth came as the result of Abraham and Sarah taking God's plan into their own hands, that, that Ishmael was still blessed. Read Genesis 17. That Ishmael still served a, a, a purpose. Then he turns to another set of siblings, Jacob and Esau. A difficult story that raises all kinds of questions about fairness, about justice. When I think of their story, Jacob and Esau, I can't help but remember the feuds I had with my older sister growing up. Any of you have siblings? The, the feuds I had with my older sister growing up. We're incredibly close now, incredibly close now, but it wasn't always that way. We constantly went back and forth about our parents showing favoritism to one of us or the other. We, we, we constantly went back and forth. We'd argue over who got the bigger bowl of ice cream. I'd complain about her getting to stay up later because she was three years older. She complained that I'd get it easier because I'm the younger brother. She was mad that I got the family mini, minivan for myself when I got my license. I was mad because she didn't have to work through high school. There was a whole lot of back and forth, constantly comparing one another and how our parents related to us. But Jacob and Esau, they take that sibling rivalry to a whole different level. The older brother Esau would serve the younger Jacob, to which you can hear the older sibling shout, how is that fair? Then Paul gets to the story of Moses and Pharaoh. He quotes Exodus where God tells Moses that he will have mercy on those, on those whom he has mercy and compassion on those whom he will have compassion. It's not about human effort. It's not about human effort. It's about God's mercy. Now, we often talk about grace and mercy 
at WPC, as most churches do, and we should, because we need grace, we, we need mercy, and it's important that when we do, we remember what exactly we're talking about. Well, grace and mercy, they're similar, but they're, they're different. Grace is a gift that we don't deserve. Grace is a gift that we don't deserve. Mercy is being excused of a punishment we do deserve. Mercy is being excused of a punishment that we, we do deserve. In the original language and context, compassion carries a similar connotation to mercy. So when Paul quotes Exodus 33, where Moses is told that God will have mercy on those whom God chooses, he's quoting from the story where Moses goes up Mount Sinai. Remember this story. He receives the Ten Commandments, all the detailed laws and and the blueprints for how the Israelites were supposed to worship when they were together. And he's up there for a long time. He's up there for a long time. And, and what do the people do down below? Aaron, it's taken too long. We need something to worship. We need something to worship. It's taken too long. They turn to Aaron. They say, hey, we don't know what happened to Moses, but we want something now. Give us a golden calf. Aaron makes a calf. The Israelites worship the idol. And God is, is furious. And Moses is furious too. And the, the Lord sees that in Moses, and the Lord says to him, I have seen these stiff-necked people. Leave me alone to my anger, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. As Moses goes down the mountain, he had to expect some sort of severe punishment. The Israelites deserved it, he knew. But ultimately, they don't get what they deserve. That's mercy. That's mercy. Paul is comparing that part of the Israelites' story with what, another part of their story with what happened in Egypt. He writes that, that, God's, that God raised Pharaoh up and placed him in power so that God's name would be proclaimed throughout the earth. By refusing to release God's people, Pharaoh forced Moses to work a series of miracles to bring Israel out of Egypt. And because of those miracles... As Joshua 2.10 states, God's power became known throughout the world. So why is Moses shown mercy and Pharaoh's heart hardened? It's not fair. Why, again, is the question that Paul's asking. How can we say that God is just if, as Paul writes here, and as the book of Exodus repeats over and over again, God chose to harden Pharaoh's heart? If you read through Exodus 4 through 14, if you read through it quickly, if you read through it quickly, you miss something important that happens between Moses, Pharaoh, and God. There are two phrases that are thrown out often, and the phrases are, are very similar. One of those is that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and the other one is God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We don't have time to get into it too much today, but, but these are two different Hebrew words, two different Hebrew concepts that are used here in Exodus, and, and, and uh, it's important that we understand the, the difference. When Pharaoh is hardening his own heart, a word is used that is, implies making something heavy. Making something heavy. So, so Pharaoh is making his own heart heavy. When God is doing the hardening, it's a different word. When God is, is doing the hardening, the word implies establishing or confirming a decision that someone else made. If God 
Is God allowing it to happen? Yeah. But it's different from causing it to happen. And is it unjust to allow one person's heart to harden and show mercy to another group? Maybe. But as Isaiah 55, 8 reminds us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Biblical scholar Robert Mounts, he he puts it this way. He says, To fault God for showing mercy to some while hardening others is to require that he conform to our fallible and arbitrary concept of justice. We can't know all the answers. That's God's job. But that doesn't mean that we, we don't have a role or a purpose. As, as this part of, of Romans chapter 9 continues, Paul explains uh, the role. He, he, writes, he writes this, One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? So what does formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Years ago, whenever I would lead a group of people on a ministry or mission trip to Malawi, there are always two places that we had to visit before we got on the plane to come back home. First, people would want to go to a, a wood market by the lake to, to look at some wood carvings and then to, to bring those home. And then the other place that people wanted to go was to a, a place called Dedza Poverty. Dead's a pottery. If you're ever in my office, I have uh, both some things from the wood market and from Dead's a pottery uh, up in my office on, on the shelves. And at home, Haley and I have, have at least two teapots from Dead's a pottery and all kinds of mugs. Um, we have this one that I meant to bring with me today that, that has, uh, it was a parting gift. It, it has a painting of me on, on the mug and it looks nothing like me. Um, but uh, they always want to go, and, and I have never been. I have I have never been much of a, an artist when it comes to to pottery. Any of you dabble in pottery? Kind of, kind of. No one. Do you know the process of pottery? Yeah, you know the pot. First, a potter sits at a wheel and molds clay or material into whatever he or she is making, with each item being slightly different from the other. And the second stage is the firing or, or the glazing where the vase or the cup or whatever it is that you're making is hardened. Paul goes, to, goes on to take this metaphor of a potter and clay, which was used in Isaiah and Jeremiah as well. And he says, when does the thing that the potter formed turn to its creator and say, what's my purpose? Now, when the metaphor is used in Jeremiah and Isaiah, it comes up during times where God was struggling with how to handle a rebellious people. Like a potter working with clay that wouldn't quite get into the right shape. The image isn't supposed to communicate that we are lifeless lumps of clay. It's there to speak specifically about God's purpose in choosing and calling his people. First with Israel. And then with this church in Rome, and and now with us. And we can be molded for the purpose God has given us by by remembering three three quick truths. First, God made us. It's that simple. Yesterday I went on a a hike with with Piper, with my my five-year-old, and um, she was pointing to everything. God made that. God made that. Sitting in the car. God made this. I said, well, God didn't really make this car. And my wife sitting next to me said, well, God made the people that made the car. 
And, and, and I think sometimes we just forget that reality, that God made us. In verse 21, Paul writes, Doesn't the potter have the right to make some things special, or for special use, and others for ordinary use? So many of us spend a lot of time and energy trying to be something or someone we are not. Which isn't to say that we're not loved or that we're not significant, but sometimes we spend a lot of, of energy trying to be just something that we're not. And if we really are God's creation, we need to know that we have a place, that God created us. To some degree, I'm, I'm guessing many of us can relate to the story of, of Job. When Job questions God about his suffering, God reminds him of his place. Satan wants to prove God uh, to, to prove to God that Job only loves God because of what God has done for him. So God allows Satan says, "Yeah, yeah, go go and talk go and talk to Job. Try." And after a whole lot of pain, Job's friends they they tell him to just give in, to curse God and die. And then in chapters 38 through 41 of Job, one of my favorite parts of the book, God goes on this. This little bit of a rant. It's not something that we often read in Scripture. And, and, and I like this, this rant. He, he challenges the idea that Job even had the right to ask the question in the first place. Who is Job, a mere man, to question his Creator? We need to remember our place. We're not the potter. And we're continuously being molded by the great artist. Then in, in verse 22, Paul says that even though God has shown God's wrath throughout history, he's also shown a lot of patience. Well, now, whenever we, we talk about grace and mercy um, and, and wrath and judgment, I try to mention that they're, they're, they're kind of opposite sides of the same coin, tools that God uses to restore a right relationship with, between God and humanity. So if we go back to that image of the potter and the clay... A good artist is one who works slowly and patiently, even as the clay doesn't quite form into what the artist wants it to be. An amateur might, might get frustrated, might, might lose his patience. And I don't know about you, but I find comfort in knowing that I'm sitting on the wheel with a patient potter who goes to great lengths to remind me of who I am and why I exist. And then in verses 23 and 24, Paul, Paul writes that God shows us the riches of his glory by revealing his mercy, but only to some people. And this is the great mystery of Romans chapter 9, at least in my mind. Somehow, if God either condemned everyone or if God showed everyone mercy exactly the same Paul writes that we wouldn't understand or see God's glory. He's coming back to how he, he started this, this letter, how he started the, the, the letter to the church in Rome. In the same way that we can't grasp the depth of God's grace without understanding God's judgment, without understanding God's gra- wrath, we can't grasp mercy without first understanding condemnation. For the Roman reading this letter, and, and probably for us today, The biggest question of this section is this. If God could save everyone, why doesn't he? 
Why isn't mercy shown equally everywhere? The best answer I can come up with is the example Paul gives with Pharaoh. Has God allowed Pharaoh's heart to be hardened? But if I'm honest, it's scripture passages like these in Romans 9 that leave me thinking of Father Mike, the Anglican priest, in our car rides together. It's because God's God and, and, and we're not. We can't know it all. But we do know that God is just. Even if it doesn't always make sense. And that God desires to be in right relationship with us. Which is why we are constantly being molded into the purpose that God has for us. Let's pray. Loving God, we, we thank you for your scripture. Even when it leaves us asking questions. Lord, may those questions lead us into a deeper relationship with one another and a deeper relationship with you. Thank you for meeting us and for shaping us along the journey. We pray these things in your name. Amen.